Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. All right, what's up everybody and welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me this evening. Glad you're here and happy you are listening. Well, today I want to go back to the monetary crisis that's happening in the U.S. Um, Conservatives spend a lot of time talking about fiscal responsibility and budgets. In fact, they're, they're kind of considered the fiscal party, right? The fiscally conservative party. And there's a, during the debt ceiling debate, I had recorded this uh, speech by Rand Paul, and I thought it was really good. He breaks things down really well. And Rand Paul, I mean, I know there's no such thing as an honest politician, but he's about as close as you can get to an honest politician. And he breaks down this budget situation really succinctly. And I thought it would be worthwhile just going through it and talking about these these various components of the budget and how much of it is just on cruise control. You know, they just raise it every year. Um, I mean, incidentally, do, you know, for those of you listening, do you get to raise your salary every year? For those of you that make stuff and sell it, do you get to raise your prices every year just on cruise control? No. I mean, this is this is only something governments do. And... This has led to kind of where we are today. And, um, but this is, this is largely, and I say it all the time, but this is, this is a function of central banks. This is a function of the Federal Reserve in the United States. This, this amount of borrowing would not be possible uh, without the Federal Reserve. You know, a lot of these politicians like to run around and say, the debt of the United States will not be you know, questioned or whatever they say, it says in the Constitution. And, you know, this this really was written at a time when there was no conceivable way in the founders' minds that we would have $32 trillion in debt. You know, this is just, you know, they might, they you know, they their minds were in the, in the range of, hey, we might have a two-year war that we need to pay for and we'll have to borrow some money and then raise taxes to pay it off, and so on and so forth. But the era of central banks have really made this level of borrowing possible. I say it's possible. It's it's possible so far. But eventually, uh, this, this scheme runs out, just like a lot of other schemes that rely on other people's money and government fiat. So I want to play Rand Paul's uh, talk in the U.S. Senate and I want to I want to stop it from time to time and talk about these elements of our budget and and how much I think it's shocking to to see how much of our budget is just on cruise control and is not even negotiable uh, in the Congress like they like they don't even talk about uh, doing anything with large segments of the budget. And therefore, you know, it, it, it really makes it impossible to do anything uh, under the category of fiscal responsibility. So uh, without further ado, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. We're going to play a little Rand Paul here, 
and um, and then stop it from time to time and, and elaborate on some of the things he's talking about. Our national debt now stands at about $32 trillion. How did we get here? Whose fault is it? Republicans? Democrats? Well, the answer is yes. Both parties are at fault for different reasons. Republicans come to this floor and will come to this floor today saying, we need unlimited military spending. And Democrats will come to this floor and say, we need unlimited welfare spending. And guess what happens? They compromise. People say Washington doesn't compromise. They compromise all of the time. That's what this debt deal, debt deal that's before us is, is compromise. But the compromise is always to spend more money. How do we know that? The debt deal that's been crafted by Biden and McCarthy is an unlimited increase in the debt ceiling. See, historically, when we raised the debt ceiling, it would be $100 billion or $200 billion or, God forbid, a trillion dollars. It was a dollar amount. This debt ceiling will go up till January 2025. How many dollars will be borrowed? As many as they can possibly shovel out the door. So because of this dynamic that we have in the media, you've got the Republicans that are afraid to really take on this problem. They just get demagogued like crazy in the media. Oh, you know, the Republicans want to throw grandma over a cliff and, you know, they just, they just, they end up losing this, um, this battle because they just don't know how to message, uh, the problem. And, and it doesn't, you know, the thing about it is, is it doesn't do any good to say, Hey, there's going to be a big bill to pay or every American is going to suffer, uh, with this continued borrowing at this level. Because, you know, the, the, the reality is that day never comes, right? But it will come. That's the thing, is it will come eventually. It just doesn't come in between congressional cycles or senatorial cycles or even presidential cycles. And this is the reason. So they, they it, the Republicans kind of sound like Chicken Little running around talking about the sky is falling. So they're, they've just given up on that. I mean, they, they have quit trying to be the fiscal uh, sanity of, of, of the government. They, they just have given up on it. They, they have decided that the media is against them. Uh, their message can't get out. Uh, nobody seems to care. So they make a lot of noise. But at the end of the day, they give in and the debts increased. Now, the interesting thing that Rand points out here is that in this particular agreement, uh, they didn't increase the debt ceiling by a certain amount. They increased it until a certain date. So it can just go and go and go until January 20 of, uh, 2025. So five days after somebody takes the inaugural address, they're going to be dealing with the debt ceiling. Maybe it'll be Biden. Maybe it'll be some Republican candidate. But that's what they've, that's what they've created with this agreement. And, of course, nothing really was addressed. And, and that's the real sad and terrible truth behind all this is that we are spending uh, future generations into bankruptcy, into financial calamity, and there just seems to be no uh, 
no power that can stop it. And um, this is this is a real problem. You know, I, I think only about half of our citizens pay taxes. And so if you take this $32 trillion and you divide by $165 million, you get uh, about $193,000 per person owes money uh, to this debt. And of course, it'll never be paid, right? Because uh, even though it's $193,000 per person, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's probably four times that per household. I mean, in my household, how would I come up with, you know, $800,000 to pay off the debt of the United States? I mean, it's just, it's impossible. It's never going to be paid. So, um, essentially, you have bankruptcy is in our future of some type, some type of default, or uh, some type of hyperinflation. Those are the only two choices. And unfortunately, history tells us that governments always choose the latter. They don't ever do the honest thing and default. They just borrow more money and print more money until the value of the money has been so so debauched and so destroyed that uh, it creates a you know an economic calamity. And that's where we are. It will be how much money can you shovel out the door until January 2025? That's how much we will spend. Is there a dollar amount? No. How much can you shovel it out and how fast can you shovel it out? There will be no restraint from this debt deal. There is a pretense. There is a playing around the edges as if, oh, there might be a cut here or there might be a cut there. There are no cuts. Why? Two-thirds of your spending is entitlement spending. The on-budget entitlement spending is Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and other programs. They are called mandatory and no one ever looks at them. They go on in perpetuity. This is what drives the deficit. Who took them off the table? How come there's no discussion of this? Actually, Republicans took them off the table because they fear being criticized by the Democrats. It's being used in the presidential campaign. Let's not talk about the entitlements, but that's two-thirds of what gets spent every year. So if you don't talk about the entitlements, if you don't talk about mandatory spending, you're frankly not a serious person, and you will not make a serious dent in this problem. So we've taken off the table all mandatory spending, no discussion of it. Does this mean they're in good shape, that Medicare and Social Security and all these programs are in good shape? Heck no, they're not in good shape. They're all running out of money. They're headed towards bankruptcy. Is anybody brave enough to reform them? No, not a damn thing's going to be done for any of them. But when you take them off the table, take all the entitlement spending off the table and do nothing about it, now we're down to one-third of the budget. I would venture to say that only 10% of Americans, and that's probably being generous, have any idea that two-thirds of our budget, our annual budget, is made up of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and other welfare entitlement programs. That, 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 that number would surprise people, probably. You might get some people say it's half or it's a third or something like that. I don't, I don't, I don't think anywhere even close to a majority of Americans have any idea about the size of this particular category. And 
you know, to Rand Paul's point, I mean, this is just off the table. <laughs> I mean, we're, you know, you're just going to spend, there, there, there's a couple things that are driving this, I think are important to mention. Um, one, 300,000 Americans every month are retiring right now. And that trend is going to continue for the next 20 years. So you've got 300,000 Americans going on Social Security and Medicare. 300,000 citizens a month for the next 20 years. That is a tremendous number of people. And, and you have a shrinking workforce. Uh, we have a shrinking birth rate. We, we just don't have the, the cultural infrastructure to continue these programs. And there's no discussion about this. It's just, oh, you're going to throw grandma off the cliff. You know, we can't elect you. And, of course, the, the elderly people come out in droves to, to vote those people away from office if any serious person does try to talk about this stuff. But... You know, there, there, I think there's a there's a lack of understanding of what the other side is. You know, if you don't do something about these programs, um, there'll just be an, an enormous financial calamity, and everybody will suffer. Everybody, young, old, poor, wealthy, everybody will ultimately suffer. Um, so I, I just, you know, this is a to me, you just never do this in the first place. You don't ever create Social Security. You don't ever create Medicare. I mean, part of the part of the big problem we have in the healthcare system is Medicare and Medicaid. They're a huge chunk of of the medical uh, healthcare business, and and insured people like me, in large part, are subsidizing uh, that chunk that accesses the healthcare business. You know, we talk about this all the time. We talk about how you, you take, you do something productive in society and you get money, right? And you get money and then you take that money and you demand resources from the economy. Well, what the government does in the case of Medicare and Medicaid, they're demanding tremendous resources from the economy, vast resources in the healthcare industry. And where do they get that money? They just print it up or tax it. And, and this is a huge uh, imposition on the market. And, and whatever's not being paid for in taxes and uh, inflation is getting paid for by insured people, largely people that work for uh, corporations and, and small businesses in America. So, you know, this is, there is no... Free health care. You know, people go, oh, I'm going to go on Medicare and it's going to be free. There is no such thing. These resources uh, exist for the purpose of making money. And the, the government to go in and demand those resources from the market without, without honestly coming by the money is just a, a, a form of theft. They're basically stealing these vast quantities of resources for uh, a particular political constituency. And that's really what's happening. So now you're going to try to do budgetary reform 
while excluding two-thirds of the spending on one-third. But it's worse than that. The one-third they call discretionary spending. It's about $1.6 trillion. Half of that's military. So they took that off the table. So mandatory spending entitlements is going up 5% under this deal, because that's what it's been doing for, for years and years. It's going up at 5%. Military is going up at 3%. So what are we left for? What are we left looking at? We're looking at one-sixth of the budget, somewhere between 15 and 20%, a small sliver of the budget. It's called non-military discretionary, and they think we're going to do some kind of fiscal reform on that small sliver of government. Well, guess what? You can't do it. You can eliminate all of the non-military discretionary money. Leave the mandatory in place, leave the military in place, increase them, eliminate all of this other chunk of money, and you still never balance the budget. See, there was a time when there was a conservative movement, the conservative movement had a voice in Washington. There's still some voice, but not much. But there was a time when people on the conservative side of this said, well, in order to be a thoughtful, rational, realistic, strong response to the budget deficit, you would have to balance your budget in five years. In fact, we voted on a constitutional amendment in this body and every Republican voted for it. But it said you had to balance five years. Why five years? Well, because most of the plans that lasted longer than that, most of the plans that balanced in like years nine and 10, were basically somebody fudging the numbers and hoping something good would happen in year nine or 10, but the only years they actually had any power over the first year or two, there weren't very many cuts. And they always had unrealistic expectations in year 10. So what have I done? I've said, let's look at balancing this in five years. What would it take? There's a couple things I want to pull out of here. You know, one, military and then discretionary um, or discretionary spending is one third of the budget one-third and the military is half of that so like he said you, you're dealing with one-sixth of the budget that they can actually pull levers on and it's just not enough it's you're talking about 800 billion dollars if you eliminated all 800 billion dollars you still wouldn't balance a budget you'd still have a budget deficit so what, what does that mean budget deficit well that means that that the treasury is going to borrow more money Right, so not only are we not going to be able to pay even the interest on the debt, they're they're continuing to borrow even more. So this is just not going anywhere, um, except you know circling the drain. This is not uh, a recipe for fiscal responsibility. And I love that he brought up the whole ten-year thing because that's been going on now for decades, where these People run around. They say, "Well, we're going to balance the budget. We're the, you know, the, we're we're going to pay for it over ten years," and you know, it's just a it's just a gimmick because things change. A new Congress comes in, a new president comes in, and you know, one Congress can't bind another Congress. All they can do is sunset things. So, like if they pass a law, they can say, "Well, in five years, this law will automatically expire unless something is done." That's kind of the way the Patriot Act and some of those things are. And that's the only way you can bind a future Congress. And even then, they can get rid of it. So it doesn't do any good to talk about what you're going to do over 10 years. This is uh, a government tactic. They all do it. They all go on these Sunday morning shows, and they all talk about, 
well, we're going to do this over the next 10 years and we're going to pay for it. And it's just, it's a bunch of lies. And so, you know, we're just not going to do much here. Uh, this is why I say they're just going to continue to borrow more and borrow more until the dollar is worth less than toilet paper, you know, and it's and, and there's going to be some sort of currency crisis uh, that involves the U.S. dollar. And the reason the U.S. dollar, the reason this is such a serious deal is because all the other currencies in the entire world are tied to the U.S. dollar. So... If you have a, a hyperinflation on the U.S. dollar, you have a hyperinflation on every currency from every country. And there's no stability anywhere with any of the currencies because none of them are backed by anything except U.S. dollars. So this is a, a real serious problem, but we don't have serious people in Washington to deal with it. Um, you know, this... the. The reason we have all this, for all those of you out there that like Alexander Hamilton, this is the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton. We're still living with the, the first bank of the United States, and then the second bank of the United States, and now the Federal Reserve. But this is all dishonest money, and if you don't want to have calamities, and you don't want to live in a world where everybody's trying to live at the expense of their neighbor, you've got to get rid of the Federal Reserve. We've got to get rid of this fiat currency system and go to some sort of real money system. And when I say real money system, all I'm saying is something that the government can't create out of nothing, which is exactly how they create dollars. So about five or six years ago, I began introducing something called the penny plan. And what would it do? It would cut one penny out of every dollar. It actually would balance. Actually, the first year I did it, I didn't even cut 1%. I froze spending for five years, and the, balance, the budget would have balanced. But the trick is, or not the trick, the truth is that you have to cut all spending or freeze all spending. You can't just freeze a sliver of the spending. So people have talked about, oh, there's a 1% trigger on the, non, on the discretionary spending. That's $16 billion. They're going to add $4 trillion in debt over the next two years. And they say, but by golly, we might save $16 billion, which even that is not going to happen because the trigger isn't real, doesn't have muscle, and will be evaded. But the thing is, is that if we were to balance the budget over five years, what would happen is there now needs to be about a 5% cut of all the spending each year for five years, and then the budget would balance. And you say, well, isn't it just a number? What would that mean to real people? Why do I care whether the budget is balanced? Well, go to the grocery store, go to buy gas, go to buy anything, go to pay your rent, look at your cost of living, and look at what inflation is doing to you. Who does inflation hurt the worst? Those on fixed income and those of the working class because they don't have extra expendable income. Most of their income goes towards things that they have to purchase each month. But where does inflation come from? A senator from Indiana described it accurately. We run a debt, this place spends money we don't have, and where's the deficit made up for? We sell that debt to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve buys it, and he's like, wow, this is a great system. We spend money we don't have, we print up these things called treasury bills, the Federal Reserve comes over and then buys them, Wow, we can just do anything we want. We have the printing press. But when they create new money and that new money enters into circulation, that is inflation. Inflation is an increase in the money supply. 
And when you increase the money supply, you chase the same amount of goods, you're going to chase the prices right up. And that's where inflation comes from. There's a couple interesting things in this, in this segment that I want to point out. One, about five or six years ago, all we had to do is free spending to balance the budget. And then a few years later, you had to reduce spending by 1% in order to balance the budget. This is across the entire budget. Now, in order to balance the budget, you'd have to, you'd have to reduce spending about 5% across the entire budget. Can you see where this is going? In, in another year or two, it'll be 10 or 12% you'd have to cut. And in another year or two after that, it would be 15 or 20% that you'd have a cut. And another year or two after that, it would be 25 or 30% that you have. This is exponentially increasing. And, and so we're, we're maybe, at most, uh, a decade away from a complete currency collapse, is what it sounds like to me. Uh, you just have a, a runaway government that's on cruise control with 5% increases every year. Um, regardless of the performance of government, regardless of whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. In fact, many times, if they do a bad job, they, they go before Congress and say, well, you know, our budgets aren't big enough. We need more money. And, and then Congress gives them more money. And so, you know, there, there's... We have a spending problem. We, we have a group of people in the managerial state that spend money regardless of what it's on. I mean, you might as well be spending money to dig holes and then fill them back in. That's, that's about the uselessness of the government. Now, the other thing that he explains here is, why is this important to you? Why is this important to every American? And he basically explains... Uh, where inflation comes from. Inflation comes from the expansion of money and credit in the economy. Um, this is just the textbook definition of inflation. Inflation is not rising prices. That's a symptom of inflation. Inflation is the very act of increasing money and credit in the economy. To the extent prices have been flat over the last 15 or 20 years, is only because we've had an increase in productivity. If, if, the, if the economy is more productive, if we're producing more goods and services faster than we can inflate the money supply, then prices appear to just be flat. But what prices really should be doing is they should be going down over time. If you held the money supply flat, then as the economy produces more and more and more every year, prices of things would go down. This is, uh, this is why you see TVs and things like that go down. What's happening there is the, pro the productivity is increasing at such a high rate that prices are going down faster than inflation can keep them steady. So that's what you see in certain, certain markets like televisions and certain electronic products. But a lot of people don't realize that 2% inflation uh, is really, you know, CPI, 2% CPI is really more like 6 or 7% inflation every year. So now that we're at 9, that's more like, you know, 13% or 14% inflation, price inflation. 
So he kind of he kind of touches on this, and I think it's a real important point. And again, this is the only way to get rid of this. The only way to to eliminate this problem is to get rid of the Federal Reserve. To get rid of the what uh, G. Edward Griffin called the Mandrake mechanism. And the reason he called that is Mandrake was a magician way back when, and and this is magic, right? He even says, you know, Rand Paul even talks about, oh, we just print the money up and we buy whatever we want. You know, it's it's great. It's a party. But there are real costs associated with this. This is why every year it feels like you're having to work harder just to have the same lifestyle you had the year before. And this is what happens to most people. So the debt is not just a number. The debt is about the value of your paycheck. It's about how far your paycheck goes. So right now we're in a bit of a spiral. We've had 9% inflation. It's a little lower now, but we've had as high as 9%. And I think the cost of living increase for Social Security went up 9 to match that. But you'll actually find people who say, you know, even with the 9% increase, I still can't buy everything I need. I'm actually still being squeezed. But it's a bait and switch. It's because your government isn't honest with you. If your government wanted to be honest with you and they say, we're going to be everything to everyone and we're going to give you stuff. And it's funny because we have this comparison sometimes with Sweden and people say, and many Democrats will say, we want to be Sweden. We want to be Sweden and we're going to give you everything. We're going to have a big government that coddles you from, from cradle to grave. But you know how they do it in Sweden? With a balanced budget. And I'm not advocating we become Sweden, but they balance their annual budget every year. You know how they got, they have all that free stuff to give everybody, how they have a safety net that includes everything, including college, free healthcare, everything. They tax everybody, enormous amount of tax. Over here, the bait and switch is they'll say, we're just going to tax the rich people. It's easy. Just tax the rich people. They don't do that in Sweden, though. In Sweden, they tax everybody. It's a 60% income tax beginning at $60,000 a year. So everybody pays. The middle class pays. So if we wanted to be honest and we're going to say, we're going to give you this massive safety net. You don't have to work. Everybody can have a basic income. You do all of this. We would be honest or we should be honest and say it would take massive taxes. Instead, there's a dishonesty. But the dishonesty is on both sides of the aisle. The Democrats say welfare is free and the safety net's free and Social Security's free and all these things are free. What do Republicans say? The military-industrial complex is free. You can have all the weapons you want. You can give hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons to Ukraine and it won't cost anything because we'll just print it up. See, there were times in our history when you went through a war and the devastation of war in World War II that people actually suffered and you could see the suffering and people felt like they had to pay something. But now we just put it on the tab. But there is a point at which the tab gets so large that there can be something precipitous happen. I'm glad he brought up Sweden. You know, a lot of people do this when I bring things up. They're like, well, Sweden can do it. And, you know, well, first of all, Sweden culturally, I mean, this is something he didn't bring up, but I think it's very important. Culturally, everybody's kind of the same in Sweden. They all have kind of a similar work ethic. You know, in America, we have very different cultures living here. We've got some people think that think it's okay just to sit around and do nothing. You know, that doesn't work in Sweden. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of shame that comes a lo- comes to people in Sweden if you're if you're not pulling the wagon, so to speak. Only so many people can ride in the wagon, and you know. I think it was. I think it's important that he brought this up. You know, they're paying about 
60% tax, even people that only make 60000 a year, that's a lot of money that you're giving to the government. And a government like ours that wastes it so much on military and, and you know, just all kinds of things. I mean, I just, I would never be in favor of giving our government 60% of my income. I mean, I would have to leave the United States if that happened. Um, but yeah, he goes into this and, and this is a, a very valid point. I mean, the, the thing I like that he does here is he brings up the word honesty, which you hear me talking a lot about. You hear me talking about dishonest money and dishonest accounting. You know, it's dishonest to stand up in front of voters and say, you should have a right to XYZ and you should have a right to ABC and then not pay for it and then layer that cost on future generations or layer it, put it out in the future in such a way that it could potentially cause some sort of calamity, some sort of financial collapse. This is, uh, you know, that's very, very dishonest. And that's our system. I mean, we have dishonest money. We have dishonest politicians. We, we, we have a population, to be quite honest, that thinks it's okay to want stuff and have their neighbor pay for it. I mean, we would never advocate going and hitting somebody over the back of the head and taking their wallet. But for some reason, we think it's okay to go vote for politicians to do just that. And so we have a very, we have a very different culture here in the United States. We, we could never be Sweden. I mean, we just, we just have people that don't think right. You know, in, in Sweden, they have a, a more cohesive culture that is in agreement about what they're doing there. We have a lot of disagreement about how to do things here. We just never work. But um, I, I love how he brought up the dishonesty in what we're doing. The dishonesty of borrowing a third of the budget every year to pay for things that we promise people and then put it on the tab and let some future generation pay for it. It's extremely dishonest. So we have a dishonest system. We have dishonest money and it's pretty much what you get. All right. I'm going to wrap up uh, today, but I want to, I want to play this last clip because I think it's, I think it's really good. It's just his closing thoughts more or less. And he talks about, you know, kind of the, what if, well, what if they're wrong? You know, what if you're what if you're wrong, Bernie Sanders, that you just can't print it up and pay for it? What if you're wrong, AOC? And and he kind of entertains this possibility here at the end. So we'll play that, and then uh, we'll wrap up, and I'll see you next time on Who Gets to Decide. The question has always been: Is this a gradual problem where we'll just have to deal with a little inflation, five, ten percent here? Or is there a point at which there's a calamity? If you look at the stock market for the last 100 years, uh, some people will point to like seven different days in which like 80, 90% of the downturn occurred in seven days in the last century. Is there a possibility of calamity when we're so destructive to our dollar, when we're so destructive to good sense? <laughs>